0: Welcome to Short Course, episode 87, for January 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. This is the first episode since the Christmas and New Year holiday, so I took two weeks off. There was a big release just before Christmas, a bunch of documents from USPSA, and we'll be talking about a bunch of those today, Uh, but just want to say I will also probably be well, we'll see. We'll see what the schedule looks like for the end of this month. So I will be in Florida for the last week shooting the, the IPSC Pan American Extreme match, which I'm looking forward to, but it will be on a Thursday, which is typically my the, the night I have to record and, and upload these podcasts. So I'll have my mobile podcasting set up. So we'll see what I'm able to get and get uploaded. But if you don't hear from me that week, that's that's where I am. And obviously, I'll be talking about it afterwards. So, a bunch of stuff dropped. Um, my impression is, this was all sort of rushed out the door around Christmas because they wanted, they were really attached to this idea of getting it out 30 days ahead of the in-person board meeting, which, as I mentioned before, is, is typically in January. Uh, for whatever reason, this year it's not in Vegas around shot show um i guess they're meeting in Florida for for some reason that's i believe that's what i've seen obviously it's not open to the public so they haven't publicized a ton of detail but i, I believe that's what's going on but either way it's it's going to be well actually it's going to be in Florida around the time of the 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 extreme pan american match but i think they're going to be in a different part of Florida but anyway they my, Like I said, my guess is they were trying to rush this out because they were kind of attached to this idea of giving the members 30 days to give feedback. And, I mean, there are basically five groups of, of changes that were all dropped all at once. One is a, a rules audit of the main USPSA. They call them competition rules because they used to be the handgun rules, but now the handgun rules include PCC, so they just call them the competition rules. So sort of the, the main USPSA rule book some changes to steel challenge, some changes to the multi-gun rulebook, a proposal for limited optics as a division, and then some changes to, well, limited 10 and production proposed equipment changes. So it's worth noting, I don't know why they're bringing out the the production changes now. As I mentioned in, in my last podcast, the way the bylaws are written to change competitor equipment rules the proposed changes have to be published for a period of 90 days before they can even be voted on and once they're voted on they can only take effect at the beginning of the calendar year and so that window has closed for for 2023 no matter what the the board votes on this production and limited 10 change they they cannot the rules will not change until January of 2024 so there were there were a lot of rule changes hot and heavy and so as a part of the bylaws revisions they made it so equipment changes can only be made once a year which ironically now means that these changes can't actually be fast tracked which you know one change is talking about raising production capacity as i mentioned on the last episode they they explicitly float three different options um one the first one is factory capacity with no aftermarket base pads, which to me is sort of a non-starter. How do you how do you regulate aftermarket versus non-base pads? Uh, the second thing they float is factory capacity, but with aftermarket base pads, gun must still fit the box. Again, I talked about that in the last episode. Then they talk about 15 rounds maximum. So that yeah, and then elsewhere, I think in the minutes or somewhere else in in these official documents, I I don't have it pulled up in front of me. They also presented the idea of going to to 140 millimeter magazines, which Jake Martin's, the director of media and events, and I believe the currently highest paid full time USPSA employee. So, I mean, he seems to have a lot of influence on these things. He said that 140 millimeter mags are his preference because, and I quote, "That's what he has." That's that's what he said on the NROI podcast. I only got to listen to about the first half of it because it's it's an hour and a half long, and I just didn't didn't have enough time to actually listened to it because there were so many things that I needed to make notes about, things that, in my opinion, were wrong or worth responding to. So I, I, I have not listened to the whole thing, but at the end of the day, I don't think they should expect people to have that. They should, they should put out... What they put out in these documents should, in my opinion, be self-contained. So the production rule change could be anything from leaving it at 10 to going to 15 to going to some flavor of no base pads or whatever fits the box or fill 40 millimeter base pads... But whatever they choose, whether they whatever they they talk about, they'll have to put out to the membership for ninety days for feedback, and then get and then the vote will be after that. So again, I'm not even sure why they're they're bothering with this at the beginning of the year, but they are. And again, the same thing with this limited ten change, which is, I mean, it's weird. It basically it would allow optics and revolvers, and I, I mean. Whatever. I, I, I kinda don't care at this point. So I mean, if they want to do this, I, I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I I don't see that it's really um going to be important to the future of the sport either. But the the, the thing I did want to go over was the, the rulebook audit and I've got I've got enough content on my notes here that it looks like uh this is probably gonna be at least a thirty minute episode, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hustle through this just so I don't spend all night recording here. But before we get to that, I did want to mention the the limited major proposal, which is a literally one-page PDF. Um, it basically says it's the same rules as limited, but minor only and with a slide right optic, which kind of surprised me. I, I figured when they were talking about limited, they would have limited major and minor. Um, I, I haven't seen a particular explanation for why this division would be minor only and honestly the way it's written it is basically carry optics if you just delete the holster requirement the the double single requirement or double single or striker and the you know list it has to be on the list requirement the guns that we're talking about these these 2011s i mean a lot of these 2011s are going to be lighter than a 59 ounce shadow too so Aside from the first six pound double action pull, current carry optics guns are, if you want them to be effectively a limited gun anyway. So this division looks pretty pointless to me. I mean, again, I, I was just assuming limited limited optics would have an option for major to give people that choice of, do they want to beat up their their optics with major recoil or be a place for optics to be tested on guns shooting major, but... I guess for whatever reason, they want it to be this little minor only sandbox, which I mean, for me is, is just fine. I like shooting minor. I enjoy the greater accuracy that it rewards. That's why I've shot production my entire career. And well now carry optics a little bit, but it's to me, major isn't really all that interesting. I I, I don't have a, a huge interest in the level of sloppiness that is allowed by Having a, a Charlie B four points and a, a Delta B two, I, I'm kind of more in favor of something like what IDPA does, where in certain divisions in CDP, the the 45 ACP 1911 division. Well, it doesn't require a 1911, but it was meant for 1911s. In that division, it's just basically 165 is the power factor, or at least it was when I I'd shot IDPA. I don't know if that's still current, but if you said that. We're still going to score 40 Smith & Wesson or open major. We're still going to score them with minor points. So 531, Alpha Charlie Delta. So you, it still rewards the accuracy, but you just have to shoot a more powerful gun. I don't know. That that might be interesting to me. But I, I, this is not something I would seriously advocate for. This is totally just kind of out there what-if territory. I, I don't see this being anywhere near the, the top of the priority list of of rules to change. So anyway, they, they, this propo- proposed limited minor division, honestly, at this point, I, given kind of what I've said on previous episodes, I, I think given the fact that carry optics is not in any meaningful way still a stock gun division, there only have to be 500 guns produced, you can modify and or replace, I mean, you can replace every part of the gun, the barrel, the slide, the trigger you can replace everything except the serialized component basically that serialized component the factory has to have made 500 of those but i mean at this point there are probably some limited gun manufacturers that that meet that requirement so it's not like that is a uh, a barrier in terms of allowing 2011s into into carry optics so yeah i mean at this point with as wide open as as carry optics has become, I I still kind of stand by what I said on my previous episode, which is just put the, put the, the single action guns in carry optics, call it limited optics and just call a spade a spade. It's not a stock gun division. It's definitely not a carry gun division. So let's just, just put the race guns in there because that's most of what it is now anyway, and just call it a day. Now, as for the rule book audit, this there, there's a, I think actually a pretty well-written spreadsheet. I do appreciate the way they they formatted these changes. It does make them fairly easy to read and, and process. You you have to look up some of the rules that are being referred to. But I, I definitely give them credit. This is a, a good format. This is a good way to present the information and and let people see what the current rule is, what the proposed change is, and then they they have a column for a rationale, which I think it I think it makes sense. Now, some of the rationales don't make sense or aren't particularly well reasoned. There's one rationale that just says that. A certain rule change or the way a certain rule currently is sucks. I mean, that's not much of an argument. You can provide evidence or facts or experience, but just saying something sucks is—it's not really a persuasive argument in any meaningful way. But we'll leave that to the side. I, I do want to start off by saying there are definitely some good clarifications in here. Some just regular housekeeping. So there's, for example, a rule that says that radar chronographs should use V0, which is the, the velocity measured at the, at the chrono. This is just one of those kind of keeping up with technological change rule changes that, that I think is good. I mean, the lab radars are awesome. We, we used a double lab radar setup at the NC section last year. Shout out to Nathan Carter from Shooting Sports Innovations for lending us his, uh, the section owns one and then we were able to use his. So we had the double and they were, they were awesome. We used the V0 reading at, at the section, which I mean is pretty much best case scenario for you. It's going to read as high as pretty much any Chrono will. so you, you have the, 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 the most cushion as a shooter to, to make Chrono with something like that, which is good. I mean, you want to give every opportunity to the shooter without making it blatantly unfair. So that's just I mean, a, a straightforward, simple change makes sense. They slightly tweaked the calibration process because there was one of these where you could, the rule said, go to A or B and C was an option. So just little cleanup, rewording, stuff like that. They explicitly say that not only are bagging targets allowed, is bagging targets allowed when it's raining, but you can use the waterproof targets. Again, if you want to, the, the, the rules to be explicit and call out all the options, it's, it's good to keep the list up to date. They updated I eight five one, which is a rule that basically said you were supposed to put the safety on on your gun anytime you were moving and not shooting, which nobody has ever done, and it's it's one of those things that has never really been followed. And so yeah, let's just clean it up, and remove it from the rule book. Great, no problem. Little cleanup type stuff like that. I I think it's good. I think a lot of these changes are probably overdue. You know, the lab radar thing is lab radars have really been becoming more prominent in the past few years, so. That's probably timed about right, but just keeping up with the times, I think that that little stuff is good. The things that I have commentary about, again, I'll try and uh, zip through these without without taking all day on some of these. So the, the the very first one is they're deleting the text about the classifier system from the rule book, and they basically say we're just going to put a, a link to the website, which. If they were printing physical rulebooks, okay, I could see that. The physical rulebook might get out of date. But since they went to this whole evergreen rulebook anyway, and they update it at a whim, and we have the app, I mean, if you update the text on the website, can you not also update the rulebook? I mean, it just, it seems like there's an air of kind of laziness about it, in my opinion. And to me, the rulebook should be comprehensive. You shouldn't necessarily have to send people to a website. Just Put the text in the PDF, but whatever—that's that's that's what they want to do. I I don't think it really makes a difference, but it just struck me as strange. One change that I will say is generally positive is they are updating the definitions of short, medium, and long course to delete the reference to the number of positions. So basically, it used to be that a short course could only be something that was twelve rounds or less and could be shot from two positions. So you could have a 12-round stage that required three positions that was technically a medium course, or a 16-round stage that required four positions that was technically a long course. It's good that they're updating the definitions. It is strange to me that they're defining a medium course as 12 to 20 rounds when IPSC defines it as 12 to 24. Is there a strong case for one or the other? I, I don't especially no, but it's just weird, like, why 20? But, you know, America's got to be different, I guess. The, the real thing is there are so few rules in the rule book that actually refer to short, medium, and long courses in terms of what is allowed and what is not, that I don't know that this rule will really have much of an effect, in the sense that in the existing rules, the only things that you're really allowed to do on a short and medium course are require mandatory reloads or specify positions that something has to be shot from and that's only at level one matches anyway. There are a few rule changes that we'll talk about in a minute that that allow some things that can be done at, at short and medium courses. But again, it it's basically it not really a, a significant difference. So it's good that the definitions are right, but the definitions aren't actually really used. They aren't referred to by many other rules and so it's kind of immaterial at, at the same time. Obviously, if there were some kind of requirement that you have some balance of short, medium, and long courses, then it becomes more relevant. But since there is nothing like that, it's mostly academic. Now, that said, there are a couple of rules about... So one that I think is is definitely good is allowing, specifying the requirement to use strong or weak hand for an entire short or medium course. So basically, this means you can set up a a stage, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Previously, if you wanted to do something like this, it basically had to be a, a speed shoot, which is defined as a as a stage where you're not moving. You're just shooting everything. You're shooting a rays from a single box. So now you could actually set up a 12-round short course, and as you can do in IPSC, say the whole thing has to be shot strong hand, which I think is an interesting test of one-handed shooting that is, is valid. I, I think having that in the rules is pretty cool. I don't know that limiting it to short and medium is that necessary. I mean I guess it prevents complete masochist stage designers and match directors from setting up a 32 round stage that has to be shot all with one hand so it it doesn't allow that in the rules but it's something that's kind of so dumb do we need to ban every dumb thing in the rule book so they they could have just said like IPSC does that you can just require strong and weak in in stages but whatever I'll, I'll take it it's it's a generally move in the right direction, so that's good. There, uh, So there's another rule about allowing Virginia count to be used for medium courses and fixed time scoring to be used for speed shoots. Both of these I really couldn't care less about. I, I think both fixed time and Virginia count are dumb. Fixed time in particular at a local level is really unfair in the sense that if you set a time that's challenging to the top guys then a lot of your C and B class shooters aren't even going to be able to shoot half the stage so i it just it doesn't really seem like something with a lot of value and virginia count also uh, outside of classifiers where you're trying to shoot strong one-handed as well as freestyle in the same stage if you now that we have the ability to just put one-handed shooting as an element of stages where you shoot the whole stage with one hand having these mixed stages where you shoot some freestyle reload to one hand or vice versa require having virginia count for that purpose i mean i guess it kind of makes sense but to me just having a stage that's shot one-handed is is a better test and and more in line with the overall ethos of the sport anyway and there's also the element of virginia count that to me is kind of counter to the freestyle hit factor scoring ethos of you shoot until you have good hits uh, which incentivizes calling your shots not just shooting and then walking down range and seeing what you shot it it actually rewards you being able to see in your sights a bad shot and and make it up and virginia count not only doesn't reward that it actively punishes it if you subconsciously call a bad shot and fire a makeup in a twenty or a thirty split, you've just gotten yourself two procedurals—one for extra shot, one for extra hit—and so it it actually, in my opinion, punishes one of the things that the sport should really reward, which is shot calling and quickly and subconsciously firing makeup shots. I, if if Virginia count and fixed time disappeared from the sport tomorrow, I I wouldn't cry. So expanding the number of stages that they can be used on—I mean, I I don't care really. Um, I don't know that it's that it makes that big of a difference and I don't know that it's moving the sport in the right direction if this is what I mean I think one of the justification columns for, for one of these changes was that it allowed stage designers to spice things up as though this was what would make interesting stages was Virginia Count medium courses, which to me is tells you that whoever wrote that does not understand stages, at least not they, they, they have a very different preference set than I do for what constitutes a good stage. Let's put it that way. There were two other rules that delete level one exceptions regarding course construction, and I I don't really understand the reason for deleting these these exceptions. And so the, the, the two in this case, one was the, or is, the requirement, the, the ability to specify in the written stage brief that an activated target has to be activated before it can be shot. And so this is, I mean, this just comes down to you're at a level one match and they don't necessarily have the props to block a target before it's activated. Similarly, the the other rule that was mentioned as potentially being up for removal is and I, I actually have never seen this rule used, but I've also not shot any indoor USPSA matches, any kind of restricted props environment USPSA matches. But the 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 rule in this case allowed at a level one match the written stage brief to specify that you were not allowed to leave the shooting area. Which the the USPSA idea, especially at bigger matches, is you dictate where people are allowed to move by physical construction of, of barriers. And if you don't want someone cutting outside the shooting area, then put up walls or barrels to block their path. Well, at local matches, at level one matches, I can imagine it being convenient to be able to say, hey, you just have to stay in the shooting area for this stage. Otherwise, people could just take shortcuts or, or what have you. So Again, the the ability to, if you're limited on props, to have an activating target that has to be activated before it can be shot or to just say in a written stage brief, hey, you have to stay within the the fault lines. You can't cut outside the the shooting area. At a level one match, I'm, I'm inclined to leave those because I'm sympathetic to the restrictions that level one matches operate under and the limited props and the limited space. And let's say you're trying to set up two stages on one bay and having all the extra walls and barriers might make that not feasible. I, in general, I, I think having more allowances like that for level one matches that accommodate the fact that it's tough to set up stages with limited props. And in a lot of cases, you're setting them up right before the match. I mean, this is the way the it's not a, a USPSA match, but this is the way the indoor match that that I help run works. You know, we we show up and the. The stages get put together by some volunteers and I'm often cases tweaking them almost up until the last minute, just trying to get things things working. And so in that scenario, it it is useful to just be able to say, hey, don't shoot this from here, or that kind of thing. Now, again, obviously this is not a USPSA match, but I'm very sympathetic to the ability of level one match directors trying to put on a a regular match again with with limited props. So I, I don't I don't really see the reason to remove these exceptions. Except say, oh well, you know, I nobody uses them. It's like, well, maybe the fixes leave them in for the people who want to use them and make people aware of them. That would be my approach. So I, I again, I don't understand why the impetus to remove those rules in particular at this juncture. It it feels like the the rule book is being really laser focused on bigger matches and sort of forgetting about locals where compromises have to be made. It's just it's just part of getting volunteers to put on these, these stages. So that's, that's what it looks like to me. That's the only justification that really makes sense. There are a cluster of rules around holster and magazine pouches on your belt, basically equipment when it can't be removed. And there's, there's one clarification that I think is probably a fair one, which is the rules say you're not allowed to remove things or add them to your belt, but it never specified what the penalty is, and so now they're specifying the penalty is A0 for for any stage you shot in that condition. Administering that seems like it might be hard. I mean, if you take something off between stages without ROs following you around or doing an IPSC-style card where you mark what gear is on your belt it seems hard to enforce but okay fair enough there's a rule in the rulebook saying you can't do this let's let's specify what the penalty is is it a procedural is it a zero is it a dq you know whatever the the thing that gives me some pause is they they add a rule 5210 that says any competitor who shoots a course of firewall out of compliance with the requirements noted in 525 or 527 will receive a zero score for that course of fire and the reason that, that gives me a little bit of pause is, is just the way that's in force. So 525 five is basically holster position, 527 is magazine pouch position. So it's, it's basically, that, that rule says, if you shoot a stage with your, with your gun or your mags in an illegal position, it's a zero for that stage. And I mean, this kind of echoes rule language that's already in 525, five, uh, specifically 5252, five, two. Which says any competitor who shoots a course of fire while out of compliance will receive a zero score for that course of fire, unless specifically exempted by the rangemaster. If the RO suspects or is notified that a competitor's equipment is out of compliance for their relevant division, the RO must measure the distances at that time. Penalties will not be retroactive to previously completed stages and will be based solely on measurements taken on a particular stage. So, I mean, the existing rule and this new rule. Uh, well, so the existing rule says. There's nothing retroactive, but this new rule doesn't have that verbiage, and so I mean it it's it's not clear, right? So theoretically, if you add five to ten to the rules and you have some guy shoot three or four stages of the match and then the ro says hey your, your your holster needs to move the the way the rules are written currently, basically they can't start another stage after they've been notified of that, but it's not retroactive to previous stages, which I think is, I think that's fair. I think it's on, to some degree, it's on the RO to say, hey, that's an illegal holster position. Come over here. Let me throw an, an overlay on your belt or whatever. If the RO doesn't catch it before you start the stage, that's on the ROs. And I say that as someone who ran equipment check at the Chrono, who's run, who's been a CRO on stages. If a, if a competitor has illegal equipment, it's on you to catch it before they shoot the stage. If you wait until they shoot the stage, unload show clear, and then you throw the overlay on their belt, and because it's per the per the rules, because it's on this bay, it's not retroactive to previous stages, but it's on this stage, and then you they're out of compliance and you zero them for the stage, that seems pretty competitor hostile to me. I don't think this is something that's gonna happen a lot, but I, I could see this being a a weird situation where these in my opinion, this is one of those rules that needs to be airtight. It needs to be well-written, well-thought-through, and, and very explicit. And like I said, I think the, the proper balance is it's on the RO to spot it before they start the shooter, whether it's on the given bay or whatever. It's on the ROs to check that the gear is, is valid, and giving a guy a zero because you didn't notice that his holster was half an inch too low or something, I mean, let's be real, holster position is not that much of an advantage. Do I think we should specify a clear, bright line and then require competitors to be within that standard? Yes, absolutely. Do I think zeroing a stage is a commensurate penalty for something like holster position? No. And so this feels like a way too strong of a penalty. Now, can you say, hey, a competitor gets a procedural for every stage they fired retroactively with uh, gear that's out of position? Okay that I could see that now. I mean, at that point you start getting into issues about if the score sheet for previous stages has already been signed, uh, you know, anytime you are going back, especially at a big match, anytime you're going back and modifying stages where the competitor has hit approve, or if you're still doing carbon copies, you've actually signed and you know torn off the white sheet and the yellow sheet. Uh, yeah, I, that, that's where it gets really sketchy to me. To me, just call it good if the RO notices something, you have to fix it before starting the next stage but any any scenario where it's even possible that you could be issuing retroactive zeros for stages uh i I get really nervous, and so I think if this is the direction the rules want to go, the wording needs to be tightened up quite a bit. This new five two ten rule should not duplicate the verbiage in five two five two and. Yeah, the the whole thing needs needs to be workshopped quite a bit before before being changed, in my opinion. Just just to just to remove any opportunity for crap like this, where someone just has it out for you, or decides that he wants to ruin your day, or who knows? I, I just it needs to be airtight, in my opinion. And the last few things on the list here are just more general commentary things than, than specific rules issues. So uh, one of them is Appendix E3 used to illustrate two things. One was where your gear could be positioned relative to your hip bone. And then also it illustrated arms uh, relaxed at sides or naturally at sides, whatever the, the, the exact rule book verbiage was. And obviously the trend over the last few years has been getting away from that to this wrists below belt start which maybe this is just a perception thing, but I'm seeing a lot of guys where their default gamer start position is their left hand is like right in front of their junk. And again, maybe it's just a perception thing, but I don't think that's good for the sport. I think having the idea of hands relaxed at sides or having an actual diagram posted on the stage that indicates what the, the start position is, but it's something where you're not in this you don't look like you're a 10 step spring wound up to go. I mean, again, it, it just, it, it looks very gamer ish, but you know, I mean the tactical version, right. Is having your hands up in front of your face or, or your, your fingers curled under your t-shirt, ready to do your appendix draw. I mean, all this stuff is just, is just kind of hokey to me. I don't, I don't, I, I seriously do not think anybody gets a significant competitive advantage by having their hand in front of their belt buckle instead of relaxed. It's just the, the perception, the way the sport looks where you're, you're, you're obviously like cheating as close as you can to, to the gun. And I I don't know. I I think it's, I think it looks goofy. I don't think it's necessarily the right direction to go, but they they're removing the whole appendix with that even had the diagram illustrating hands, hands relaxed. And so obviously the, they're, they're doubling down on this. Oh, just wrist below belt. And so we're going to see yeah, guys, grabbing their junk with their weekend for the foreseeable future. Which I don't know. Maybe that was inevitable, but it's it's a doubling down on that. Uh, another thing is the they're explicitly adding a rule saying that you're allowed to take sight pictures at Make Ready. Obviously, this is something that, that's been discussed. In my opinion, I'd I'd rather see it go the other direction. Have something more along the lines of no sight pictures at, my, at Make Ready. You can check your dot against the ground, but otherwise, load the gun, get ready. None of these minute two minute dry fire extravaganzas that make ready just because it's unfair to other competitors it slows down the whole match and i don't think it's I, I do not think it's an important part of practical shooting i think you should show up to the line ready to shoot if you're not unload get off the line and go to the back of the order but this again spending a minute or two just clicking your gun around making everybody wait it, it it's not helpful, and so I'd rather see this port go in the opposite direction, but this is adding another rule that just sort of confirms the what is and isn't allowed when taking sight pictures at Make Ready, so there you are. And then something else that I thought was strange is a redefinition of compensator to a device fitted to the muzzle end of a barrel or machining integrated into the slide and or barrel to counter muzzle rise, usually by externally diverting escaping gases. And so what it said before was just the device fitted to the muzzle end of a barrel. It didn't mention the machining. And this is, I guess, pretty narrowly aimed at this gun that SIG came out with where they have a barrel that doesn't go all the way to the end of the slide and the slide where the front sight normally would be has some, some machining cuts. And so basically what ends up happening is gas comes out of the the top of the slide and it acts like a, a bit of a comp without having an actual comp to me. The compensator should just be defined as something that reduces recoil by redirecting gas. Um, this would also solve the issue. So IPSC has the same definition of compensator, and I believe this is the reason that anything that is a sight block, so something you screw on the end of the muzzle that, that you can mount your front sight on, by the literal definition in, in the rule book, that is something attached to the end of the muzzle that reduces muzzle rise. And so that sight block is technically a compensator, even though it, it does not redirect gas in any way. So to me, both IPSC and USPSA's new division are are both bad. They should A compensator should be defined by redirecting gas, not by whether it's attached to the end of the muzzle or not. So any device that redirects gas, that could be cuts in the barrel, popple holes, right? I mean, arguably, you could make a case that you could drill popple holes in your carry optics gun because... That's not in the definition of a compensator. I, I, I haven't gone through the rulebook comprehensively to, to double check that, but if a compensator is defined as something, a device fitted to the end of the muzzle, then just drilling you know, a, a Glock 19C or, or any of those compensated barrels, um, would that be allowed? I'd hope not. But either way, to me, just redefine a compensator as something that reduces recoil, muzzle rise, however you want to define it, but it, it acts by redirecting the gas. So again, this is if we're going to redefine it, let's redefine it in a way that's, that, that is better, not just adds more ambiguity. I mean, again, so in this wording, uh, machining integrated into the slide and or barrel to counter muzzle rise. Well, I mean, some people say that lightening your slide reduces muzzle flip, right? So does now any slide lightening cuts become a compensator? because it's machining integrated into the slide to counter muzzle rise. Like, this is not a good definition, and it opens up all kinds of messy stuff. I, I see where they're going with that, but without a definition, when they list usually by externally diverting escaping gases as an example, but not a part of the definition, ooh, yeah, this 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 needs work. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on on the rules in the the spreadsheet. There are a number of other sort of miscellaneous changes about target sticks and, and, and little just general cleanup stuff that I think all that stuff is fine. No no issues there, but there are a lot of these things that I think need to be tightened up quite a bit, and I, I very much hope that they fix these issues before they vote on whatever the final version of some of these rules are, I guess, at the in-person board meeting. Uh, I don't know. I, I This whole thing feels very rushed. I don't understand why. I They can have all the discussions they want at the in-person board meeting, but let's actually go through a couple of rounds of revisions. let's put out the, the the second round of these issues and see get get a second round of feedback and keep iterating until people aren't pointing out gaping holes like this. that that would be my inclination. but I, I get a real sense of sort of impatience from from leadership that all right, we got this. these are our choices. let's let's get it banged out before the before the season starts. We don't want this dragging out into major match season, which I'm sympathetic to, but at the same time, don't don't rush bad rules in either. Both are bad outcomes. So let's try and and minimize either. But anyway, there's a bunch of surveys. Um, the surveys, <laughs> uh, the surveys are not particularly well written. My favorite are some of the questions that ask, you know, would rule X en- enhance or hinder your ability to design stages? And then the answers are yes or no. And the yes yes means enhance or hinder, I guess. But it doesn't say which one, whereas no would mean it doesn't enhance it. yeah anyway I, I I mean I don't want to be botanic, but at the same time these people are supposed to be writing these clear rules, and I just I don't understand why this pattern of poorly phrased or poorly worded or ambiguously worded rules, clarifications, survey questions, all of it just it it seems to be a bit of a pattern so. Those are my thoughts. You should read over as much of the, the changes yourself as you can stand. Um, I didn't even touch any of the changes to the multi-gun rules or the Steel Challenger rules. The, they're all out there. I, I do encourage you to spend time, read over them, and then go through the surveys. The, the surveys, in addition to the yes-no checkboxes, they, they do have the ability to type in comments I don't know how many of the 35,000 members are actually going to fill out comments and how long it's going to take to read all the comments and whether all eight board members and Troy and Jody and Kevin, I, I don't know if they'll actually take the time to read every single one. We'll see. But I, I, at least if you do your part, put in your thoughts, we can't say we didn't try. So that would be my inclination. I will be doing it over the next few weeks whenever i can sit down and and actually write a a coherent response to to each question and and each rule change and and really try and put these into clear precise words just because i don't assume that they're going to listen to my podcast either this is just for you guys that find it interesting but in terms of actually communicating with the board this is this is the the approved channel so i will do it through through that so that wraps up this episode of short course my email is ben at com. talk to you next time